Do you struggle with a lack of focus or energy? The team at Physician Designed knows the feeling and they can help. Brain Support Micro PQQ and Microactive CoQ10. Both use a proprietary blend of PQQ and CoQ10 to maximize the boost you need without any negative side effects. Studies show that Brain Support Micro PQQ and Microactive CoQ10 lower fatigue, anxiety, and depression while increasing mental acuity and awareness. Feel the difference for yourself today. You can save 30% on your next order at physiciandesigned.com. Just use the code GENIUS during checkout. Again, that's GENIUS to get 30% off at physiciandesigned.com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is Micah J. Green, PhD. He's a faculty at Texas A&M University in the Department of Chemical Engineering. And we're going to talk about the topic, uh, what does science tell us that the material universe is all there is, or does it say something different? So, Micah, thank you for coming. Hey, thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. Well, tell me a bit about your background and then what led you to uh, consider this topic and this question. You bet. I'm a chemical engineer by trade. I grew up here in Texas and then uh, ended up pursuing a Ph.D., and chemical engineering at MIT. And I've also come from a, a religious background. And and as you know, there's a stereotype here in the U.S. that those two that those two worlds, the science world and the religious world, don't really have anything to say to each other, or worse yet, that they're that they're somehow antagonistic. I really got interested in this topic in earnest when I was in graduate school. I had I had one long winter, I remember, where I began to worry that, you know, we were looking, we were doing a lot of science every day. And sometimes when you focus on science all the time, you start thinking, that science is the only way to know anything, right? So that view is called scientism, that science is the only trustworthy means to truth. And that can then lead to the, the next the next uh, step down the process where you think that um, the things you can study with science, that is the, the natural world, are the only things that even exist. So that would be kind of materialism, the view that, that atoms and energy and things like that, that's all that exists and everything else is just, a, is just our own creation. And then the additional level beyond that is once you start thinking of yourself as nothing but atoms, you start to have some pretty disturbing thoughts. I remember I, I had a lot of nights, you know, where I lost a lot of sleep thinking, oh, after I die, I will like immediately cease to exist. And if you've never had that experience, that existential angst of like, oh, I will I will stop existing when I die and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, it was pretty terrifying. A lot of lost a lot of sleep. And it wasn't that I was, you know, that I necessarily necessarily had been argued into it. It's more that I was I was worried that uh, any counter views would just be wishful thinking. But eventually I kind of came out of that for several reasons. So let's let's start with the first one. Scientism is the view that the only way for us to know anything is through science. Well, that statement is not a scientific statement. So it's almost like a rule that violates itself. It would be like me saying sentences in English are a lie. So so that one doesn't really work. And yet you'll see it all over the culture. You'll see it all over the place where people say things like it's wrong to believe things without sufficient scientific evidence, forgetting that that statement doesn't have any scientific evidence behind it. So that was one thing that helped bring me out. The other thing that really brought me out of, of that period of skepticism and, and doubt and materialism, I started thinking more and more about 
what has to be true about our mind uh, in order for us to do science. You know, so I was doing science every day in graduate school, and I started thinking about, you know, if materialism is true, then ultimately I and, and every other human, we're, we're all just biochemical machines, right? We're just bags of biochemicals undergoing, undergoing biochemical reactions, and everything that we do, everything that we think is just biochemistry. So that would mean we, would, we don't really have minds, we have brains. We don't really have rationality, we have just bio, biochemistry. People like, like yeah. Francis Crick have made exact, exact statements like that. That's called reductionism. And I started thinking about that, and I thought, if, if I'm just a meat computer, just a, a biochemical machine, then I'm not really rational. And if I'm not really rational, then why am I listening to myself? So the idea is that once you start reducing humans, including the scientists, down to the point that they're, that they're just a meat computer, you start kind of losing your confidence and, and your own cognitive reliability, which is something you can't really yeah. do. Yeah, there was a, there's a, a Christian apologist named John Lennox that I interviewed, and he, he would ask people, you know, where does your brain come from? And if it's, a, if it's the end result of a mindless series of random events, you know, you trust it then? You trust your mind or your brain if that's where it came from? So I thought yeah, it was a funny uh, way to put it. Right. I thought so, too. I've had the opportunity to, to interview Dr. Lennox before. This is really fleshed out in a, a book by the famous philosopher Alvin Plantinga called Where the Conflict Really Lies. And he's talking about the conflict between religion and science. He's saying the conflict really lies with a reductionist view of humans and science, that it starts to undermine science if you go too far down that road. So, yeah, that's, that's exactly the, the sort of thing I, I have in mind. The other thing that I started thinking about was consciousness. And I think the way I've explained that to people is... Uh, do you remember back in, this is years ago, pe people would have these little electronic pets called Tamagotchis. Have you ever heard of those things? Yeah, I saw a commercial for them once, yeah. Yeah, it's just an electronic pet and you're supposed to feed it and things like that. And if you don't feed it, then it slowly starves to death and it makes little sad noises like, Meh, and eventually it dies. And so the funny thing is, you know, it makes these little sad noises to try to play on your sense of, of, of sympathy. But we all kind of know that the Tamagotchi is not actually going through pain. It's not actually suffering the way that 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 someone else that like a person would if they were starving. So we don't really feel bad for the Tamagotchi. We don't really feel bad for uh, Mario when he dies in a video game because we know he doesn't actually undergo pain. But the trouble is, if you reduce people down to a biochemical machine, then the distinction between the Tamagotchi and Mario and a human starts to disappear because they're all just just computers, right? They're all just atoms interacting. And the idea of a conscious experience of pain, or the conscious experience of of that, that first person subjective self that we all experience all the time, a world that's all atoms really has no room for that. And so if you're a reductionist and you say, we can all be reduced to atomic interactions, it starts leading you in some directions that you really don't want to go. I saw an article by Steven Pinker some years ago, and the byline of the article said, you exist, right? How a hundred billion jabbering neurons create the illusion that you're here. And I remember thinking like, this is actually trying to undo Rene Descartes. Descartes. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. And Pinker is saying, like, you don't really think and there really is no you. And so that's the point where I said, OK, so I, I need to, to recalibrate here. If a reductionist view of humans takes me down a road where I, I, I think of myself as non-conscious and non-rational and non-moral, then I can't go there because I know kind of from firsthand that I am conscious and I am rational and I am moral. And you actually need all three of those to be a scientist. You have to believe that you're and you can reason things through. You have to believe that you're conscious and actually can experience the things that you're experiencing. And you have to believe in ethics. Otherwise, you can't really get going in the scientific enterprise. So all three of those things have to be real just to do science. 
And all three of those things indicate that there's more to our universe than just atoms interacting. Yeah, I've, I've studied a lot of evolutionary biology and, you know, through my interviews with thousands of scientists, it, it's it, biology is so amazingly complex. There's no way it's like laughable to me now that it would be from random events. I mean, there's just no way. And the fine tuning of the universe and N and N and N and N, there's all these arguments that support there has to be more than just what, what scientific reductionism would say. Yeah, the fine-tuning argument, I think, is really beautiful. If your listeners aren't familiar with that, the fine-tuning argument is the idea that there are all these fundamental constants of the universe, like you know the, the, the strength of the strong nuclear force and the mass of the electron and things like that. And those numbers could be different than what they are, but it, physicists can do simulations and they say, okay, what if I mess with the numbers a little bit? And it turns out anytime you change the numbers, even slightly, you end up with a universe that you know, is only hydrogen or can't have chemical reactions, or stars can't form, all these kind of things that would really lead to a, a lifeless, boring universe. But it turns out all the all these values are exactly what they are, and they, they, they're they exactly the right, perfect value to have an interesting universe. And so that's the idea of fine-tuning, that our universe is fine-tuned for life, for science, for all kinds of things. And okay. so, so you also um, speak to the degree of fine-tuning, because that, that really amazed me when I learned that. Yeah, it would be analogous to, you know, walking into a room and you're with ha that has a bunch of safes and your friend goes over and like turns the dial on the first safe and opens it and he turns the dial on the second safe and opens it and he does that after several safes. And you say like, how did you do that? And he would say like, eh, accident. You, you would say like, I don't think so. <laughs> so you, there's no way you got all those safes right by accident. And the larger the number of safes grows, the more you, you start thinking, I think, you know, something's fishy here. And so anyway, this is where, you know, a lot of these suspicions that there's something, some intelligence beyond the universe starts to pop up. Uh, the famous astronomer Fred Hoyle, who is not a theist, he still said that the fine tuning was really impressive. And he said, it appears as if a super intellect has monkeyed with the laws of physics. So a super intellect definitely sounds pretty theological. The standard scientific answer to the fine tuning is that, well, maybe we have an infinite number of universes and we just happen to be in the lucky one. I suppose that's possible, but there's no real evidence for it. You'd have to kind of decide for yourself which explanation is the most plausible. Do you struggle with a lack of focus or energy? The team at Physician Designed knows the feeling and they can help. Brain Support Micro PQQ and Microactive CoQ10 both use a proprietary blend of PQQ and CoQ10 to maximize the boost you need without any negative side effects. Studies show that Brain Support Micro PQQ and Microactive CoQ10 lower fatigue, anxiety, and depression while increasing mental acuity and awareness. Feel the difference for yourself today. You can save 30% on your next order at physiciandesigned.com. Just use the code GENIUS during checkout. Again, that's GENIUS to get 30% off at physiciandesigned.com. Yeah, once we get to the multiverse, it just seems like people are contorting themselves into, into anything to avoid that there could be, uh, you know, could be God. Right, that's right. So... So how have you how have you handled this being in academia? Is is it a hostile environment or is it um, a supportive environment? What has it been like to you in your career? Yeah, it hasn't really been hostile at all. I, I'm in chemical engineering, where you know th this this kind of thing doesn't work its way into my day to day research. But I think pe people are pretty open, especially in the in the physics and mathematics world. The only real trouble is that there are some stereotypes, and, and these are almost all local to the U.S. There are stereotypes that any kind of person of faith. And any person of science are like hostile to each other. But those are just stereotypes. They don't actually come from any any reason philosophical basis. There are different sociological reasons why 
you know, scientists may not be trusted by people of faith in the U.S. and vice versa. But I mean, there are plenty of counterexamples to show that the two should go together really well. What I like to tell people about is is um, the the early scientists, you know, people like uh, like Kepler. Basically, they believed. They said, you know, why can we do science? Why can we use equations to describe how planets move? And their reasoning was, well, God made my mind. God made the universe, and God wanted to make the universe in an elegant way, a predictable way that we could actually describe using mathematics. So let's go do it. And so if you read Kepler, he says stuff like this all the time that like that God created a, a world, you know, full of uh, natural scientific laws and he wants us to think his thoughts after him for us to go out and explore and understand the way that God put the world together so we would have a sense of wonder and amazement. And that's what Kepler did. So that's why he argued that instead of thinking of science as something that's like anti-religious, he would say, "Oh, it's very religious. It's worshipful." Anytime, and I, I think everyone's had this experience where you see something in science and you say, "That is amazing." That is wondrous. And that that response, that gut level response of wonder, I think is correct. And Kepler would say that's the that's that's a worshipful attitude where we say there's something bigger than us and it's amazing. And uh, I can't wait to learn more about it. Well, look at some of the recent pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. They're amazing. And, you know, they show the pillars of creation, you know, that part of space and other parts. And it's just the beauty of it. And it's just amazing. The majesty of it, too. Yeah, you can go the other way. So you can use big telescopes or you can use big microscopes and go small. There are, I mean, the, what our electron microscopes can do now and how they can go down to the atomic level is just spectacular. I work on carbon nanomaterials like uh, graphene and nanotubes, and the microscopes are good enough. You can go down and see that hexagonal pattern, carbon atom, carbon atom, carbon atom. And I always think if you could send this back in time to someone like Marie Curie and say, hey, look what our microscopes can do. She would beg you. She would say, please take me back with you. I'd much rather live in your time where your microscopes can see these kinds of things. I can't believe you have the opportunity to be a scientist with tools like that. And she's right. <laughs> if she said that, she's right. It is a remarkable opportunity to be a scientist in a time where we have those kind of microscopes and those kind of telescopes. So how does this affect your daily work as a chemical engineer? Do you, do you look for the divine in what you do or... You just keep it in mind in the back of your mind? Like, how has it changed your scientific inquiry? Yeah. So I think uh, it, it affects the way that uh, it affects how grateful you are to have the opportunity. Like every day we have in the lab is an opportunity to learn something about the way the universe is made. Uh, but more importantly, it affects the way that we treat other people and we treat our careers. So I'm going to tell you something that's kind of, you know, very honest and sad about academia. A huge number of people in academia are pursuing academic achievement and excellence because they want other people to approve of them and think that they're smart. If we're really honest, like that's all over the place. And if we say it out loud like that, everybody says like, yeah, you're right. Why do we work ourselves so hard? Why do we, why do we seek after human approval and human applause and other people complimenting us or saying that we're smart? That's really not very satisfying. That's not a good reason to, to, to be going in the lab every day, but people do it all the time. But if you bring faith into the equation, I, I'm a Christian, and I think that your identity and your value is not based on how much you've accomplished or how smart you are or any of those kind of factors. I believe your value and your worth is based on the fact that you're made in the image of God and that God loves you and gave himself up for you. And that's not based on anything you do. So what's really valuable about that is it means that you have an intrinsic value and identity but it's not based on your actions. So that removes any basis for self-righteousness. 
Um, Tim Keller phrases it this way. He says, what we need is an identity that won't crush us or exclude others. So what I see in academia is there are a lot of people who are chasing after success. And if they don't, they don't get there, then they just feel crushed by expectations. And if they do get there, then they they use that success as a reason to look down on others. And I think both of those are real mistakes. We need an identity and a sense of self and a sense of value that's not based on our accomplishments or how smart other people think that we are. And I think that's what faith provides. How do you, so like in the, in the business world, you know, entrepreneurship and striving and, and all that is, it seems like it has somewhat of an analog in the academic world, you know, yeah. writing more papers, researching, wanting the breakthrough, wanting the prize, et cetera. I mean, so since you're of faith, does that, how does that reconcile with your drive to, to learn and to discover and to do more and to write papers? And maybe, you know, I'm sure there's a part of you, of course, that wants to be recognized, but how do you, how does that reconcile them? Yeah, it's a good question. So we're constantly, I mean, this is one of those things that we have to kind of check ourselves on every day. We say, what are my motivations for working hard? Is it to promote myself? Am I buying into the lie that I am my H index? You know, that's, I, I had that conversation with someone just a couple of other days. We said, you're, you are not your H index. You are not, you are not equal to, to your academic output. But that said, we still want to work hard and, and do a great job because when you, find a sense of wonder and satisfaction in your job. You know, that's the kind of job that you can stick with your entire career. Um, I really enjoy the teaching aspect as well, not just the research aspect. I'll tell you one thing that I hated about COVID is I, I couldn't sit in, around the whiteboard with students. We're having to do so many things via Zoom and being back in the lab, back in the office, you know, writing down, writing down ideas and brainstorming together. It's a great opportunity. So just saying, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing to be here at all. And to have this opportunity, that's that seems like a much better motivation. The other thing I guess I can tell you that like faith makes faith makes a big difference is in, in the way we view ethical decisions. So like science can't tell you what should happen. Science tells you what does happen. Science makes is statements. It doesn't make should statements. So you need an ethical system. You need an ethical philosophy. You need something like what you get from from a, a religious system to have a sense of how things should be. So I care about that a lot in the context of climate change, for instance. Um, science can tell you what is happening in regard to, to climate change. But once you start saying should, what should we do, then it's much more than a scientific discussion. But for people of faith, we can actually go the extra mile and say the reason we should take climate change seriously is because it affects other people. It affects some people who aren't even born yet. And those people are valuable. And we need to act with not just our best interests in mind, but with their best interests in mind, too. Hmm. Okay. Um, what, again, what about the, um, as you do science, is there any utility to looking for an answer as to, I don't know, how to optimize the properties of graphene <laughs> in some medium and, you know, the whole big picture of, again, God created the world, set down its laws, et cetera. Like do you, have you found a way to kind of have both perspectives in your head and has it helped you to do science? Yeah, there is a sense in which, so part of what you're asking about is engineering, not just science, not just learning, you know, how does the world work, but saying, how do I use that to accomplish, you know, uh, uh, technological goals? Um, I always joke with people. I tell people, OK, chemistry is the study of what makes molecules happy. And chemical engineering is manipulating molecules happiness for financial gain. That sounds kind of mercenary and silly. So let's rephrase it. Chemical engineering is manipulating molecules happiness for solving people's technological problems. I mean, as much as people, you know, uh, fret about the state of our current world, but like the, the reality is we really are living in an unparalleled time in history 
where we've used science and engineering to, to relieve human suffering at a massive scale, never seen before. And so if we can take what we do and use it to solve these right. technological problems like um, energy, poverty, health, those kinds of issues, then it's not just for us. It's not just for our own ego, but it really helps other people. And I, I personally believe that God created us to be scientists and then be engineers to take what we learn and use it to go solve interesting technological problems. Hmm. Do you do you feel like though it, it has it helped give you any insights into the you know the chemical engineering work you do and the lab work you do? Like you know I don't know if you incorporate prayer when you're trying to figure something out or <laughs> yeah or again just in general like yeah because you have this this more open perspective. Do you feel like it's actually helped you to do be a better scientist? So actually, I think the, the the way it is most helpful day in and day out is in the way I interact with students. So again, here's an ugly, honest truth about academia. There are professors in the world who treat their graduate students as a means to an end. They treat them like little worker bees who just go out and, and, and make honey, but don't have any value into them unto themselves. So one thing I want to really make sure that I do whenever I interact with with the, the graduate students and researchers in my lab is to tell them like, hey, man, work is not life. You are valuable. The research is not the product of our university. The students are the product of the university. So my research group is successful, not based on the number of papers we publish or the number of grants we get, but rather the researchers who come out of the group are well prepared, well cared for, and are, and are ready to, to leave and go out and be leaders out in the world. So I always make a promise to the students. I will, every decision we make is going to be with your best interests at heart. I'm never going to use you as a means to an end. That comes from my faith. A lot of that comes straight out of the book of Proverbs, right? And so treating mm. other people with that level of, of dignity and respect is countercultural within academia. Huh. So um, when students interact with you, you know, your grad students, et cetera, like, are, are they wary at first? Or like, how does your interaction with them go in the beginning? And then over time, after they've been with you for a year or two, you know, what do you notice that's different about your grad students versus others? Uh, I mean, I, I think lots of our, our students here at A&M do, do really well. But um, the thing I love to see from my students is uh, excitement and confidence. You know, for students, even in their second year of their PhD, they'll come to my office, present their work. This actually happened this week. I had a second year student come to my office, present his work. And all I could say was, that's awesome. I learned a lot today. Great job. And I, I had no other guidance for him because he's already discovering new things. And there are already things that like he's kind of the world expert in that one thing because it didn't exist until he developed it. Hmm. Yeah, there was a, a mathematician. It was kind of crazy. His name Paul Erdős, and I guess he, you know, he loved math, and he would. He had no family. He almost no possessions. He would just stay with people, and uh, you know, he would do math with them like until they couldn't take it anymore, and then he'd move on to the next person. <laughs> he did like over a thousand papers, but uh, one thing he said is, anytime he discovered a theorem, he felt like he was reading another page of God's big book of how yeah. the universe works. You know, he put yeah. it in a little bit different way, but but that's how he postulated it, you know, which was which was pretty cool. Yeah, I don't I mean, know if you feel any of the same. That's certainly the way Kepler would say it. He would say things like, you know, we're trying to discover the the order and harmony that God's imposed upon the world. Another person that I really uh, respect and learned a lot from is is uh, Blaise Pascal. Pascal was a scientist and engineer and mathematician, and uh, his work still impacts all of us today. But reading Pascal, I don't know. There's there's something about I think there's something really special about connecting with 
the great scientists of the past. And reading Pascal in particular, I remember reading along and being like, you and me, bro, like we're, he's my bro from 400 years ago. I really, and he died when he was, you know, younger than I am now. I mean, he died in his, in his mid to late thirties and just seeing the way that he engaged with doubt, mm. seeing the way he engaged with, with science and, you know, what a, what a beautiful opportunity it was. And then what do you do when you're uncertain? What do you do when you have those long nights where you're wrestling with doubt, just like I was? I really appreciated that that opportunity to, to connect with the people who came before us. For any scientists who are listening, this is one of those ways that we can kind of have pride and humility at the same time. I mean, we really do have some amazing scientific advancements. You know, our, our phones have more computing power than the entire world did, you know, 50 years ago. But it's not because we're so smart. It's because we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of brilliant people who came before us. And so we can be humble in ourselves, but also uh, take pride in the fact that science has accomplished great good for humanity and that we get to be a part of that. Well, that that's excellent. Have there been, um, I don't know, like, I don't know how public you've been with uh, your thoughts and, and all that, but um, again, in academia, have there been uh, surprising sources of, of people that have aligned with you or surprising sources of attack? Like how is the, um, how well does the academic community know your thoughts? And again, what's been their response? Yeah. I mean, it's generally, it's been pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty open about my faith and Texas A&M has been, Texas A&M has been a great university to, to have, you know, pretty open dialogue and discussion. I really like the idea of trying to break down stereotypes. You know, a lot of people have a stereotype, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means you're, you're kind of backwoods and uneducated and unscientific. And so if I can break down that stereotype so much, the better. One of my one of the people that I admire the most is my friend uh, Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech. She's a climate scientist and and she's a Christian and she has done such a beautiful job of reaching out to both communities and breaking down those stereotypes and saying actually instead of Christians being the ones who are you know skeptical of climate change, we should be the ones who care the most. And so anyway, I really appreciate things like that. One interesting one really interesting source of agreement is um, on the topic of consciousness. There are lots of people who are atheists who are kind of throwing in the towel on reductionism. So some people say like, oh, you're right. We can't really explain consciousness just using, you know, atomic simulations and things like that. So some people say, well, maybe, maybe consciousness emerges once you get all the, all the parts in place, but they don't really have much more of an explanation than that. So uh, Thomas Nagel, who's a philosopher at NYU has actually said he's, he's an atheist, but he says he's not a materialist. He says there's something about the universe that at its core is mental. Like it has a mental component. And uh, some people call this panpsychism. To me, it sounds like a halfway house to theism, which, which is fine. Um, but those kind of discussions about like, how do we, what are those areas that, that science really cannot explain? I think uh, there's a lot of agreement on those, on those points. Hmm. The only well, time people, good, um, oh, I was going to say the yeah. only time people ever get snippy is if there's like some, some political backlash behind it. You know, like if, if people are worried about what's going to be taught in schools or if you're trying to smuggle religion into the classroom or something like that, which I'm, I certainly have no intention of doing. Hmm. So, you know, what do you see as the, uh, the future of this, uh, this debate or this, these, you know, these two perspectives, do you see it, you know, uh, I don't know. It, it just seems like there's forces that are, are happy to keep this divide in place and widen it. But what, you know, what are your thoughts going forward? What do you see as possibly happening you know, over the yeah. next few years or decades? Of this? Well, I mean, there've been so many recent trends toward polarization I, I hate the idea that that uh, there are so many religious people who think my religion also equals this politics, which also equals scientific skepticism, which like they lump all these things as if they go together when they really don't. And I, I don't know, there been, there's, there's a lot of data that we're becoming more and more polarized. 
and we associate more with people who are already like us and we don't actually listen to people who are not like us. And so I, I'd like to see those kind of trends change because the, the more you can get, you know, cross-cutting dialogue where l- let's say, for example, that someone is like a, let's say there's someone who's a, a skeptic of climate change. What they need to do is to engage with the best of climate change science. They need to understand the best arguments against their position rather than just uh, 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 caricatures, which is what, what mo- most people do. I think social media is a problem in this regard. Social media has been shown to to heighten uh, polarization. And so um, it's, it's up to Christians who are scientists to break down some of those stereotypes so that we don't have, you know, lingering conflict between between these two communities because there doesn't need to be conflict. I appreciate people like Francis Collins. Uh, Francis Collins was the the head of the NIH for years and years and a, a strong believer and an amazing man. And so having people like that who break down the stereotypes, I think, go a long way. Okay. Well, excellent. We didn't really talk about the chemical engineering work you do, but uh, at some point in a future podcast, if you'd like to come back, we can do that. You bet. Like we do lots of 3D printing in the, in the lab and manufacturing and work with carbon nanomaterials. And it's it's an exciting time. I guess the the short version of that is like there's a lot of stuff that was just in the lab ten years ago, but industry has taken up and noticed, and it's uh, it's not just in the lab anymore. It's transitioning out to the rest of the world. That's especially true here in Texas. Yeah, I guess one last question: Where in your research and your work do you see, I guess I'll call it like the hand of God or the, the spark of the divine, or you know, I mean, I guess one one answer would be everywhere, but in particular, <laughs> are there are there places where where this jumps out at you, even in your own research? Yeah, I, the 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 answer that jumped on my mind when you asked is um, I started thinking about my own children. I have you know several children, and they love Legos. They love putting Legos together. This idea of building blocks. Here are building blocks, and you can use those building blocks to make lots of different things. And you can be creative, and and maybe even make things that the the, the manufacturer never even thought of. I, I really like that idea. And once you start looking at these electron microscope images, where you start seeing individual atoms that idea of building blocks really comes back. And so the idea that we've effectively been given a creation full of building blocks that we can use to put together to solve problems and, and enhance human flourishing in a responsible way. I really love the idea that ultimately we're all just children playing with Legos. And it's awesome that we've been given such a such a, a versatile Lego set. We can have a lot of fun and a lot of creativity. Hmm. Well, very good. Um, it's been really good to speak to you. Where can people find out more about your thoughts and your work? Where should they go? Yeah, you can go to, to to my website. If you just Google Micah Green, Texas A&M, it'll pop up. I am on Twitter at Micah J. Green, where I try to say only things that the university president would approve of. So there you go. But those are good places <laughs> to start. Thanks. Excellent. Well, Micah, well, did, thanks so much for coming. Yeah. I did give a TED Talk on this whole issue of uh, finding identity in your work. So that's a that's a, another good place to start. If you just Google Micah Green TED Talk, you'll find it. Okay, great. Yeah, that'll be a good yeah. resource. It's called The right, Academic Michael. Achievement Trap. Hmm, okay. Yeah, we spoke about that. Yeah. Very good, Micah. Micah, thank you for coming on the podcast. I I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Do you struggle with a lack of focus or energy? The team at Physician Designed knows the feeling and they can help. Brain support micro PQQ and microactive CoQ10. Both use a proprietary blend of PQQ and CoQ10 to maximize the boost you need without any negative side effects. Studies show that brain support micro PQQ and microactive CoQ10 lower fatigue, anxiety, and depression, while increasing mental acuity and awareness. Feel the difference for yourself today. You can save 30% on your next order at physiciandesigned.com. Just use the code GENIUS during checkout. Again, that's GENIUS to get 30% off at physiciandesigned.com. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.